Welcome to another edition of the Law and Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in numerous ways. And each week we take some time to look at a passage from God's Word to see where his two words of law and gospel are at and what they are saying to us. And this week we're actually going to do it a little differently. Usually we look at one of the passages from the upcoming Sunday's lectionary texts but today I figured we'd continue looking at 2 Corinthians 5, because last week I began looking at that passage in the first part, verses 1 through 10. And the second part of it, well, it's just, it's one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament, maybe the entire Bible, not only because of its incredible sort of gospel pronouncements in it, but also because of the description that we're given of, well, what kind of it means to minister as ambassadors of reconciliation, or as I've titled today's uh, devotion, Ambassadors of the Great Exchange. And so uh, let's go ahead and dive in. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses uh, 11 through 21. Let's pick it up right away as we discuss what it means to be ambassadors of the Great Exchange. Well, we can't help when we think of that word ambassador but think about our State Department or think about the act of diplomacy. But basically, if, you know, we're just kind of boiling things down to their bare essentials, to be an ambassador is to speak the words that your leader has given you to speak. It's that simple. And so we have ambassadors in this country, uh, the United States, to every country on the planet. And that ambassador is supposed to deliver a message that the leadership uh, it wants him to deliver and nothing more, nothing less. It is, it is taking what he is given or she is given and delivering that word to the various other ambassadors or countries. Well, the Bible uses that word to describe what it is we do as we go out to the world with the gospel. And so first of all, let's look at the ambassador's method that we pick up on here in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Instead of reading the passage as a whole, I'm going to sort of take it piecemeal and point out the different uh, parts relating to the topic at hand. So first of all, with the ambassador's method, we see Paul use the word persuasion. Right off the bat in verse 11, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We, we seek to convince them of the truthfulness of Christianity and indeed the gospel. And yet, uh, just because we are delivering a specific message and we're not changing that message, that doesn't mean there isn't a fine skill or art to, in fact, persuasion. As Benjamin Franklin is famous for having said, a spoonful of honey will catch more flies than a gallon of vinegar. The idea is that there is a way that we go to the world, that we seek to be persuasive in the way that we uh, present the gospel to them. And so when we think about that, from the perspective of scripture, we can think about the way that Paul preaches, say, in a synagogue, which is heavily reliant on Old Testament themes, contrasted with the way he preaches to, say, uh, the Athenians on the Areopagus or Mars Hill, where he references Greek poets and talks about their own style of worship in order to persuade them. Nevertheless, he's getting to the same exact message. Paul says part of what he's doing, what guides him is his desire to persuade as many as possible. Indeed, he talks about this 
in in other parts of his letters to the Corinthians where he talks about wanting to win as many as possible and therefore becoming like just about everybody in order to get a hearing. And yet, when we think about the art of persuasion, there's a few areas that I think we see detailed for us in Scripture that I, I think are involved in persuading others to see the gospel. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is apologetics, which is obviously a very biblical idea. It really, the kind of heart or center and heart of the idea for apologetics comes out of 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Notice that word, make a defense, an apologia, make an apologetic. Uh, of course, we at 1517 are not shy about our love of apologetics. We actually have a regular podcast called Christianity on Trial that John Warwick Montgomery uh, does. Uh, it takes us through his apologetic method, evidential apologetics, in order to show people the reasonableness or the rationality of the Christian faith. That certainly can be a part of our persuasive tactic as we go to the world. They're going to have questions, and we ought to try and have answers. And yet, when we give those answers, it's very important, just as Peter says at the end of this verse, we ought to do it with gentleness and respect. Backed. Very, very significant. Nothing worse than an arrogant apologist and a dismissive apologist. We want to be humble, gentle, and respectful in our engagements with people. Uh, another way of persuasion is, of course, not, not as much maybe apologetics as it is explanation. And what I mean by this is maybe just explaining the Christian faith in a way that people uh, didn't, know, didn't understand. Or as a matter of fact, I think oftentimes, and don't confuse this with the sort of postmodern philosophical jargon, but I think oftentimes what we have to do in order to be more persuasive is we have to sometimes deconstruct ideas that people have coming into the church or coming into a conversation about Christianity that they have been fed over the years through whatever exposure they've had. We have to sort of deconstruct those ideas and then reconstruct what actual Christian faith is. Uh, in my experience, having actually sat under his preaching and been mentored by him for over a year, uh, Tim Keller might be the most gifted man at doing this from his pulpit, uh, preaching for decades to extraordinarily skeptical, primarily secular New Yorkers in the heart of New York City in Manhattan. Keller was just an expert and still is at at knowing what people were sort of coming in with, knowing what their objections might be, and showing the Christian answer to those objections. One of my favorite quotes that he used to say all the time is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Chances are I don't believe in that God either. It's just a way of sort of leveling the ground and saying, I bet you what you think I believe is not exactly what I believe. And so there is a part of that in our persuasion, explanation. And then, of course, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, there's demonstration. There's demonstration of the cross of Christ in particular. And what he means by demonstration is just a, a very vivid retelling of exactly what is accomplished at the cross, getting to the gospel, Don't moving, not moving away from the gospel, trying to get there as quickly as possible. As Paul says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And he goes on to say that that demonstration is the preaching of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sinners. 
all those elements are part of our persuasion. But don't discount this last one. This last one is extraordinarily important because it is the word that God works through to save people. A second means of uh, that Paul sort of references here, although maybe a little veiled in its wording, uh, as a, for a methodology as far as going to the world with this gospel is integrity. In other words, showing up to the world without a mask on, showing up to the world being the same person you are behind closed doors as you are outside. Uh, I came across this picture the other day in which a preacher stands up in front of a congregation all wearing masks, he wearing a mask too, that says, I want you all to feel free to get really vulnerable with each other. And of course, no one is and no one would dare. Too often, our churches have that same feel to them. And what Paul says here is, what you see is what you get. Look at what he says in verse 11. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Do you see that emphasis on this, the, the connection between their inner person and their outer person? It's the same thing. For we, if, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul's point here is that he's not putting on a show. He's not acting. There's integrity as they go out as ambassadors to the world. And that really is important for us too. Now, I do want to mention here, this doesn't mean uh, having your act all together. I think a lot of Christians don't share the gospel because they're all, all too often too cognizant of their own imperfections. In fact, part of integrity is admitting your own imperfections, going out and being that vulnerable person to the rest of the world, showing them that, in fact, Christianity isn't for the winners. It's for losers just like me and just like you. And therefore, it's for them. And then thirdly, Paul mentions the word imploring in verse 20 as a method as his, uh, of his ambassadorship. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, that word implore, well, some translations have it plead, and others, I, I believe the NASB has it beg. And I love that idea that we so want to see people come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ that, yes, we're not too proud to beg. We're not too proud to plead with them, to implore, be reconciled to God because God has already done everything necessary to reconcile the whole world in Christ. More about that in just a moment. So that's the ambassador's method. Let's quickly move on to the ambassador's motivation. And, you know, of course, we do need motivation as we go out into the world. Paul mentions two points to that. Number one, the fear of the Lord. Verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, when, I, when you hear the fear of the Lord here, I want you to think in terms of respect or reverence. And if you think about what an ambassador does, it's out of respect and deference to their leader that they say what their leader has sent them to say. It's a sign of respect. It's a salute. It is an acknowledgement that what we do is out of respect for God as our God, uh, as our sovereign. We are his servants. And yet that's not all the motivation. Paul mentions also the love of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. It pushes us out because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
What he means is we see everybody as, as being crucified in the sight of God and therefore capable of resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This love of Christ, don't get this wrong, although it's a part of it, it we tend to emphasize our love for Christ, but no, this is a genitive. It's the love of Christ, owned, possessed by Christ, that works in us to push us out into the world. The love that Christ has for us translates into love that we have for the world by the power of his Holy Spirit. As, of course, the famous passage says in John 3, for God so loved the world that it compels him to do something, to send his son that all might have eternal life that believe. So that's the motivation. And finally, we get to the very heart of the passage, the message of the ambassador. And essentially, if you want to know what it is, again, I've already said it, I want to repeat it. It's basically God saying, repeat after me. Don't say anything different than what I am telling you. What is he telling us? What is the message we have to bring to the world? Well, folks, it really is good news. There's three words here I want to take a look at as we consider this passage. First of all, we're told the message involves God overlooking specifically overlooking the world's sins or to use it to translate or to talk about it the way the ESV does to not count the world's sins against them. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, may lo gizomai, used in Romans 3 and used throughout the New Testament, not counting, reckoning one as righteous instead of according to their trespasses in sins not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The idea is that we get to deliver the, the news that God has already done everything necessary to reconcile them because he's not counting their sins against them in Christ. In Christ, no one's sins are held against them. Now, you hear this and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, doesn't that mean that God, therefore, is just violating his justice? Are you saying that God just winks at sin? Are you saying that God doesn't care about sin? Not at all. Or to quote Paul in Romans 6, heaven forbid, may it never be, however you want to say it. Why? Because the message also involves the news that God exchanges our sin for his righteousness. Folks, this is divine imputation, double imputation. Our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross. His righteousness is imputed to us by faith. It can't really get any clearer than 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, that is a scandalous statement, and yet it is the very heart of the gospel. If you don't get this verse, if you don't have this verse at the center of your understanding of the gospel, then you don't have the gospel. This is the great exchange that the, the reformers gloried in as they rediscovered the gospel, our sin for his righteousness. One of my favorite illustrations of this uh, sort of trading in junk for gold, so to speak, comes from my own childhood. I was in eighth grade and I had a friend named Micah that I used to go down and hang out with at his house. And one day he asked if I wanted to come down and trade cards with him. 
Now, he was primarily into basketball cards. I, up to that point, was primarily into baseball cards. And, uh, and yet I wanted to get into basketball cards because I started to really play basketball a lot. I got pretty serious about it. And so I walked into his room with a stash of baseball cards, most of them not very good. And I noticed on the floor of his room that he had some incredible all-star cards just laying around. I mean, Charles Barkley and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and, and all of these glorious players from the 80s, and most notably, multiple Michael Jordan 86-87 Fleer rookie cards. Now, for those of you who are card collectors out there, granted there's probably not a ton, you know that Fleer Michael Jordan rookie card today is worth tens of thousands. Indeed, if it's in good condition, hundreds of thousands of dollars today. This is true. I knew that it was probably going to be worth something because Jordan by that time was on his way to, well, really being one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time. And yet I had these junk baseball cards. And so kind of flippantly, kind of jokingly, I said to Micah, hey, what would you do if I gave you this Dan Quisenberry baseball card for your Michael Jordan rookie card? Now, I thought he was just going to laugh it off. I mean, it was so absurd. Not that Dan Quisenberry was a terrible player or anything, but he, was, he wasn't anything nearly the, as special as Michael Jordan. And by that time, Dan Quisenberry was late in his career, and I knew the card wasn't worth anything from a collectible standpoint. I knew from a collectible standpoint it was, I mean, for the most part, junk. And I knew that Michael Jordan's card would be worth a whole lot more one day. And to my great shock and awe, my friend Micah said, sure. And I, I, I didn't want to rip him off. And so I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Well, you do. I mean, this Dan Quiz, it's not worth anything, man. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not worth anything. He's like, ah, I don't care. I got a few more. It's fine. And so I traded my junkie Dan Quisenberry card and got myself a Michael Jordan rookie card that I still own today. My junk exchanged for his riches. My sin exchanged for his righteousness is what Jesus tells us in this message we get to deliver. And then finally, we can't forget this, the message also includes directly what happens as a result of faith in Christ, and that is God renews. God declares us to be a new creation, forgiving us all of our sins, taking away all of our trespasses, and indeed seeing us as completely righteous. We are new creations. So Paul writes, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of recon reconciliation. Folks, our problem in the church is not that we don't uh, have a message. It's that we add too much to the message or we take too much for, we take away from the message, but the message God has given us to declare to the world is Good news, God's reconciled to you, though you're a great sinner. That's part of the message. That's the law. Though you're a great sinner, though you're a great transgressor, God has done everything necessary to reconcile you in Christ and will declare you to be a new creation, completely forgiven on account of him alone. This is the message we get to bring to the world as his ambassadors. As A.B. Simpson once said, 
The gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven open wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the broken heart comforted, the sorrow and misery of the fall undone. Amen. That's the message we have to proclaim as ambassadors to God's world. Well, folks, I hope you're encouraged by that. And I hope that you are, uh, you know that you're empowered to be an ambassador, bringing this message out to the world as well. This life transforming, life saving news that indeed God has done everything necessary in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Have a great rest of the week. I'll look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. God bless.